If you've got your Bible, go ahead and take it out and turn to John chapter 17. What we read in the Bible is that everything that's been happening in the life of Jesus is leading up to this moment right here. And truthfully, everything that had happened in all of creation was leading up to this moment that we read about in John chapter 17. The Bible opens up with the account of how God uh, put everything here and um, that God didn't create the world the way that we find it. He didn't make it dysfunctional. He didn't make it so savage and, and vicious and harsh and God's not the one who, who, who invented disease and death and murder and abuse. These are all things that we brought into the world when we walked away from the creator of life. Now, it just makes sense that you would, if you walked away from the creator of life, you would find death in the same way that if you did the opposite of going in, you would go out. The opposite of up is, so you get what I'm, the opposite of on is, so when we walked away, when we made the conscious choice to turn our backs on the creator of life, it makes complete rational sense to me that what we would find when we turn our back on life is that we would find what? Death. When we turned our back on all that was good, we would find all that is bad. You see what I'm saying? Now, the moment that we made our conscious choice to turn our back on God, God set into work his plan to bring us back to himself. Some people have asked, why, if God knew that we were going to rebel against him, if God knew that we were going to turn our back on him, then why would he create that opportunity in the first place? Because the way that we did that was by eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and the evil. And the reason why I believe that God put that tree there is because God is a God of love. So he told them, I'm going to put this tree in the middle of the garden, and if you eat of this, on the day that you eat of this, you'll, you'll die. So then why put it there? Right? I mean, if he knew that they, if he knows all things and he knew that they would do that, why? Because I, I believe that choice is necessary for love to exist. If I took away, not, not, I'm, I'm married, obviously, I'm, I'm married Billy, married a chick with a dude's name, right? Her name's Billy. So whenever I talk about her, I, I call her Billy, but whenever she's not there, I always have to say Billy Jane. Because one time I was on an airplane and I said, hey, Billy. Or I said, I love you, Billy, something like that. And the dude I'd been talking to for like the last two hours, like, did a double take. I said, Jane, Jane, Billy Jane. So I married a chick with a dude's name, but she don't look like a dude, so that makes it a whole lot easier on me. That's how that works. But, um, but when, when we started dating, if I had manipulated the circumstances to make sure that she couldn't say no to me, then would I be doing that because I love her more or because I love me more? You see what I'm saying? What makes love possible is her option not to love me back. If I took away her option not to love me, then that wouldn't be most loving to her. That would be most loving to me. So if God is going to do what is most loving for us, he's got to create the option for us not to return that love. That's what makes love possible. So he put that tree in the garden just so that they had the option to choose him, knowing that they wouldn't. And they, they didn't. And so when they turned their back on God, it brought the world into being as crappy as it is. Now he he, as soon as they did that, they made coverings for their sin, the Bible says, out of, out of fig leaves, and, and you might be familiar with the story, and God said, that, that isn't what I said the consequence of sin was going to be. I said the consequence of sin was going to be death, and the Bible says that God, that God created for them coverings for their nakedness uh, out of goat skin, and, and we read right, and we just keep right on reading in the first three chapters of, of Genesis, and we skip right over that, but what happened to the goat? It died. What had the goat done wrong? Nothing. So from the time the very first sin was introduced into the world, it had to be paid for. It was either going to be paid for by the guilty person or by the innocent. Are you with me? 
but, that, but sin had to be paid for. And so from then on, anybody who had ever by faith turned from their brokenness, their disobedience towards God and their selfishness towards others, the Bible calls that sin. Anybody who would turn away from their sin would have to make an offering for their sin and by faith accept that God would accept that on their behalf as a payment. But because it's blood, the, the, the quality of life is different between an animal and a person. So this, the Bible says in the book of Romans that the offering of bulls and goats was only a temporary covering. So they would have to do that every, every single year. Then Moses comes along and kind of codifies that with, with the Ten Commandments and, and the Torah. The Jews, the Jews read, read the Torah. And that's, that was Moses codifying the, 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 the God, God's, God's instructions for, for all of mankind. So now, that now they knew when they had transgressed God's law. And, and it said that the offering for their sin had to be a spotless animal without any, any bruise or, or blemish at all. And that, that would be a picture uh, it was Abraham, actually, when, when God called him to offer his son, which is a, an unbelievably traumatic story in, in the Torah, where God calls Abraham to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. And the Bible says that Abraham did that because he was so confident that God was going to bless him through his son Isaac, that even if he died, God would raise him from the dead. That's how much he trusted God. And when he raised the knife, God said, hold it. Since I've seen in you that you would not withhold your son, your only son. And by the way, that was a picture. Him being willing to offer his only son, being God being willing to offer his only son. He said, through you and through a descendant of yours, all of the nations of the world would, would be blessed. All, all of the nations of the world. So and then God, uh, Bible says that Abraham looked up when God told him to stop. He had the knife up in the air and he looked up. And the Bible says that he saw a ram caught in the bushes. And then they offered that as a, as a sacrifice for Isaac. And then God, Abraham says to Isaac, on this mountain, God will offer himself a sacrifice for sin. And it's not a coincidence of history. I believe it's the orchestration of God behind the scenes that it was actually on that mountain almost 2,000 years later where the Romans sacrificed Jesus on the cross. So when Abraham said, on this mountain, God will provide himself a sacrifice, it actually was on that mountain. So everything in the Hebrew scriptures is leading to that moment when God would show up and once for all time make a sacrifice for sin so that we wouldn't have to keep relying on temporary offerings of bulls, goats, goats, and sheep. And so that's where we find ourselves in John chapter 17. Jesus shows up into the world. Now remember, the offering has to be pure and spotless without blemish, without any defect or bruises. So Jesus has to live his life without sin, and he does. And he offers himself as a sacrificial payment for us. And one time, Garrett asked me, he said, why did Jesus have to die on the cross for us? Why couldn't somebody else do it? And I was like, that's a really hard question. Go ask your mom. <laughs> uh, it was one of those moments, I wasn't prepared for like, no one has ever asked me like such a tough theological question up to that point. And it was like, dear God in heaven, I'm about to answer this kid. You better put something smart in my mouth. I don't know what I'm going to say. And what came out is I said, I said uh, Garrett, if, if you and I were to hurt somebody, would we deserve to go to jail? And he said, he said yeah, but I wouldn't do that. I was like, I, I know, but if we did, would we go to jail? Yeah, and we should go to jail, right? Yeah, but would I stop loving you? No, sir, you wouldn't stop loving me. I said, but could I take your place? He said, no. I said, why couldn't I take your place? He said, because you were bad too. I said, so if the judge out of love was going to let somebody take your place, who would it have to be? And he goes, somebody who was never bad. Oh, that's why I needed Jesus. Because I can't pay for your sins, because I've sinned myself. I have my own debt to pay. The only person who could take the place of somebody who is guilty is somebody who is innocent, somebody who is, who is not guilty. That's why we needed Jesus. And there were different times in the life of Jesus where he shows up into the community, 
And they, they, they didn't like him because he was upsetting the status quo. And their religion was based on good deeds and good works. And he was saying, your good works aren't good enough because God, as judge, doesn't determine your, 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 your innocence or guilty by how much good you've done since the bad things you've done. And no judge does that. When you stand before any judge, whether it's Distum County Court or, or downtown Boston, if you stand before the judge, he doesn't care how many good things you've done since your crime. All he wants to know is, are you innocent or guilty of the crimes for which you're accused? And so Jesus was telling them this. Why? Because he wasn't trying to ruin anything for them. But he knew they needed to know this. If they miss this, then they'll stand before God guilty. And they'll spend eternity suffering the consequences of their rejection of God's offering, which is me. That's why he said, um, I am the way, the truth, and life. And nobody goes to the Father unless they go through me. He wasn't being a jerk. He wasn't saying all of the religions are stupid. He wasn't saying that at all. He's just saying, I'm God. And I know there ain't no other God out here. And I've said, I'm the only one who's coming for you. Ain't no other God out here coming for you. So if you miss me, you miss God. He wasn't being a jerk. It was the most generous thing he could have ever said. He's trying to impress on mankind the importance that if you miss me and what I'm about to do for you, you miss God. And so it's not a coincidence that he starts his prayer that exact same way. So at different times throughout his ministry, people asked him to do things. He said, my hour has not come. The Bible says the temple police, <laughs> by the way, if your church has police that make arrests whenever you break the church rules, switch churches, okay? <laughs> but the temple police show up to arrest Jesus, the Bible says, and then it said, but no man laid, hand, laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. Well, now he knows my hour has come. That's how he starts off the prayer in John chapter 17. It's on. It is on <laughs> like Donkey Kong. That's actually in the Bible. That's how he opened up his prayer. <laughs> Not really, but it's, it's like that moment before the championship game, like when you're in the tunnel, right? Um, you just came out of the locker room, and you're in the tunnel, and you're waiting for them to announce your team, and those nerves and everything, and like, you're like, <laughs> like you know, as soon as you run out there, game, game on, right? And so that's where Jesus is at in that moment. He, he hasn't gone to the garden yet. He just finished with the Last Supper. He's meeting with his boys. They just, they just met. He, he dipped the bread and the wine, and he said, the person that I give this to is the one who will betray me, and he, he hands it to Judas, who takes the bread and dips it in the wine and, and eats it, and who gives the bread to the next guy who dips it in the wine, and says, so who was it? Which one, which, one, which, which one is it? And then Jesus looks right, like, right at Judas and he says, what, you, what you've already determined to do, get it over with. Because the nerves, man, the, the pregame jitters are in his belly, right? Like the butterflies and everything. He's like, dude, what, you, what you're going to do, just, dude, just get it over with. And so he leaves, Jesus finishes, and he says, you guys are going to betray me. And, 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 and they're, no, I won't. And so they're about to leave. And then, and then Jesus has a moment where he prays. And, and he's about to go to the garden, and as soon as he finishes this prayer, the Bible says in John chapter 18, they go to the garden where he's arrested, and for the next 16 hours, he's tortured to death. And he knew all of this was coming. So he opens up his prayer saying, dear God, he, he, follows, he follows the Lord, he follows the example that he set for us in the, in the Lord's prayer in the Sermon on the Mount. We talked about that a little bit at the beginning of the series. Don't want to spend too much time talking about that. But Jesus is talking at the Sermon on the Mount, and he said to his disciples, here's what I don't want you to do. I don't want you to memorize prayers and just chant them over and over and over and over and over again to God. That doesn't mean anything because it didn't come from your heart. So then they said, well, then how should we pray? And he says, well, pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven, then he, he said, I want you to address God, then I want you to pray for yourself, then I want you to pray for others, then I want you to pray, you know, but forgive us our sins, right? And so you know what we did with that example of a prayer? We memorized it, and we chanted over and over and over and over and over to him. 
which is exactly what he said, I don't want you to do. And I'm not trying to ruin the Our Father for anybody, but that's training wheels. You get, you get what I'm saying? Like, if that's what you need to just start regularly talking to God, that's great. But dear Lord in heaven, I hope at some point you say something you feel to God. You know what I mean? Because that's, that's what God wants. He wants to hear from you, from, from your heart. Now, that prayer Jesus could never have actually prayed to God because it says, forgive us our sins, and Jesus had never sinned. The actual prayer that the Lord made is in John chapter 17, where he says, glorify me so that I may glorify you. And see, that's a prayer we couldn't pray. None of us should ever pray, dear God, glorify me, make me awesome. None of us would dare say that to God. What he was saying when he said, glorify me, he said, make it important to every, like what I'm about to do, make that important. Like if I, if I told you what my top three movies are, what I'm doing is I'm glorifying those movies. I'm trying to impress on you the importance of those movies so that you'll see it. So when Jesus said, glorify me, what he was saying to the father was, make sure if I'm about to do this, if I'm going to be tortured to death, if I'm going to offer myself as the sinless, spotless lamb, who takes the punishment of the entire world on my shoulders, then dear God in heaven, make sure everybody knows how important this is that I'm doing this. I don't want anybody to miss this. I don't want this to be wasted. If I'm going to be tortured to death for the sins of all mankind, if I know that you're going to turn your back on me as you place all of mankind's sins on me, then please don't let this be wasted. Make sure everybody knows how important this is that I'm doing it so that I can make sure everybody knows how important it is that you sent me to do it. That was his prayer. Then last week, Pastor James from, from uh, the Bridge Church in, in Brooklyn talked about the next part of the prayer, which was, 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 was Jesus' prayer for his disciples. And in that prayer, Jesus says, Father, what you sent me to do, I am sending them to do. What did God send Jesus into the world to do? To rescue mankind. He says, so what I'm doing is I'm sending them to finish the job. I'm going to come back to you, he says, but I'm going to leave them here in this world. And then he says, protect them. Now, when we think about asking God for protection, we're thinking, don't let anything bad happen to me. That's what I want. Protect me means don't let me get sick. Protect me means don't let me lose my job. Protect me means make sure I get my way anytime I want it. That's what I pray, right? God, give me this. God, give me this. God, give me this. God, give me this. That's my prayer. That's what my prayers look like. But he says, protect them. But he doesn't ask Jesus, excuse me, Jesus doesn't ask the Father to protect them from harm. He asked the Father to protect them from sin. Sin would be the one thing that would keep them from doing what Jesus was sending them into the world to do, which is to draw other people to faith in Jesus. He said, their comfortability, that is not how you say that, their willingness to stay in sin is going to be the one thing that keeps them from being attractive to people who need to be rescued from sin. So God, protect them. Protect them from the things that will distract them from the mission. Protect them from greed. Protect them from lust. Protect them from bitterness and anger and hate in their heart. Protect them from temptation. Keep them away from that. Help them to keep their life. The, he ends the part where he's praying for his disciples. Dear God in heaven, what they're about to do is so important. Keep them holy. Keep them clean. Give them a zero tolerance for their own crap. The moment they step in it, help them to stop, grab a stick, and wipe it off their shoes. The moment they step in it, God, don't let them get comfortable. That's what I was trying to say. Comfortability? Is that a word? Comfortability? That, okay, I'm going to have to figure that one out later. That will not be used in the next service, I promise you. That, that, that word right there. He says, God, protect them from that. And then he moves into praying for us. And this is where we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna finish up this part of the series today. So if you've got your Bible, John chapter 17 and verse 20, and he says, 
I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will believe in me through their message. So he prays for himself, he prays for his disciples, and he says, I'm praying for all of those who will believe in me because of their message. Who's that? Who are the ones who believe in Jesus because of the message of the disciples? That's us. I wasn't an eyewitness, neither were you. And Jesus knew that there'd be many people who would believe in him who had never been eyewitnesses, but would believe the account of the eyewitnesses. And it was for them that he's praying right now. He wraps up his prayer by praying for Sean. He wraps up his prayer by praying for you. If you've come to that place where you've put your, your faith, trust, hope, confidence, and the sacrifice of Jesus is the only thing that'll take away your sin, you're the person he's praying for. Now, Jesus makes an assumption here, and the assumption that he makes is that after he leaves and goes to the Father, that the disciples would pass on that message, that they would make sure everybody knew what they had seen. And that's one of the reasons why I believe the account of the disciples, because if, if they were making it up, they wouldn't have started in the town where all of it could be disproven that it never happened. I don't know if I said that exactly right, but if I was going to make up if I was going to make up a belief that Obama was Mexican, I could not start that belief right here in America, could I? I'd have to go somewhere where they'd never seen a picture or a video of Obama, and then I might have a chance to get them to believe a lie. But I couldn't do it where everybody else knew it wasn't true. So one of the reasons why I believe the message of the disciples is that in the town where Jesus resurrected from the dead, they began telling everybody why he had done it. Now, everybody knew he had done it. The reason why I knew that they... The reason why I know they knew is because the very first time Peter ever preached in Acts chapter 2, the Bible says 3,000 people in that moment right there turned from their sins to begin following Jesus with the rest of their life. That wouldn't have happened if they were making it up. If they were making up anything about the life of Jesus, then their religion, their belief, the belief in Jesus would have never made it outside of Jerusalem. It definitely wouldn't have spread throughout the rest of the Roman Empire if any of it could be proven to be untrue. Truthfully, History tells us this, not the Bible, but Christianity spread fastest during the lifetime of eyewitnesses than at any other time in history. Now explain that to me if it wasn't true. And how about this? Every one of the disciples and thousands of others who became followers of Jesus who were eyewitnesses were tortured to death rather than admitting that it wasn't true. Now if you and I are going to agree to make up a religion, and then that religion becomes illegal... And they arrest me and start torturing me to death over something that I know you and I made up. Homeboy is rolling on your butt real quick. I'm like, they, like all they got to do is like, you're arrested. For what? For spreading this false, false religion. Okay, I was just kidding. He's, and it was his idea. I mean, they ain't even got to put me in handcuffs, throw me in the back of the car, start torturing. Like, listen, they ain't going to put a hand on me and I'm rolling on you. Like, it's a race to see who can confess on the other person. I, was like, I will beat your butt to the, to the police station because you're going down for this. We, right? If it's untrue, now it doesn't, surely out of the thousands of people who were eyewitnesses, at least those 3,000 in Jerusalem who became eyewitnesses of Jesus, many of whom were tortured to death for their belief that Jesus had resurrected from the dead. You mean none of them admitted they were faking it when they were faking it? What are the odds of that? What are the odds? You see what I'm saying? That's why I believe the account. Because Jesus resurrecting from the dead, for real, is the only thing that makes sense for what we actually know about history and what happened during that time period. It's the only thing that makes sense. That's why I know he was praying for me. I'm that guy. 
I believe in Jesus because of the message of, of the disciples. Now, this is what he told them was going to be their job. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus comes to his disciples and he says, if you follow me, I will. He doesn't say, and in fact, I'm going to have it on the screen, Matthew chapter 4. Verse 19, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but you can just tell that I'm, I'm not making it up. But in Matthew chapter 4, verse 19, it says, if you follow me, he doesn't say that I'm going to start bringing you guys into groups on Sunday mornings in warehouses so that you can talk about me. <laughs> and there'll be steeples and stained glass. It'll be so beautiful. He doesn't say that. He says, if you follow me, what I'm going to do is I'm going to help you go out and help other people follow me. And that's the very first thing Jesus ever said to his disciples. The very last thing that Jesus ever said to his disciples, 40 days after he's making this prayer for me, excuse me, 43 days after he's making this prayer for me, he says, now, fellas, to this is the last conversation he has with his disciples, 43 days later, go into all over the world and make disciples, help other people to become followers of me. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And by the way, we're doing baptism the week after Easter, and some of you guys have already made a personal commitment to faith in Jesus, where your faith in God has just recently become, become real to you. And baptism, I know, and the authority of what Jesus said himself comes for those who become disciples. And some of us were baptized as babies, and that was our mom and dad's intention to bring us into faith. But some, listen, at some point, bro, your faith has got to be your own. You've got to own it for yourself. So if you've already become a disciple, I know that Jesus said, so make disciples, baptize them. Baptize who? Disciples. And then teach them how to follow me. And the more you follow Jesus, the more you love those who don't. The closer you get to God, the more passionate you are for those who are far from him. And that's exactly, it was the first and last thing that he ever said. In Matthew chapter 16, we're not looking it up for the sake of time, but Jesus said, I will build my church. That's the gathering of those who are followers of me. And the gates of hell will not prevail against them. Do gates attack or do gates defend? What do gates do? Attack or defend? Gates defend. So who's on the offense here? Hell or Christianity? I will build my church and the gates of hell won't stop you. You know who's on the offense? The church. Who's the church? Us. What I want you to do is I want you to rob hell of the people who are destined there. The gates of hell will not stop you from robbing its victims. Get in there. Pull everybody you can out. That's the whole point of all of this. Everything that happened after the garden has everything to do with God rescuing every person who's ever been born. But he won't do it against their will. The whole thing, I will bless all of the nations of the world. The whole reason he picked the Jews was just as an example to show the rest of the world what it looked like to live in relationship with God. So that the rest of the world would also want to live in relationship with God. All along, God's wanted to include as many people as possible. We just finished a series on adoption. God's plan all along is to take spiritual orphans, you and me, and adopt us into his family so that we have a heavenly father now and a family to call our own so that none of us ever have to live without his safety net ever again. Somebody's always got my back. And now there's a plan for my life, and this is going somewhere. And I'm loved, and I'm forgiven, and I'm set free from my addictions, not just to chemicals, or to drink, but my addiction to sin, my addiction to lust, my addiction to anger, my addiction to hate. I don't have to carry shame anymore. I'm no longer guilty. My sins don't need to be punished anymore because they already were punished. I accepted Jesus' punishment for mine. I'm set free. That's what the point of all of this was. So he says the gates of hell won't be able to stop you. But what if we stop ourselves? What if we stop charging? What if we stop chasing? 
And that's what he prays for next. Look at the next verse, verse 21. I pray that they will all be one just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you, and may they be in us that the world may believe that you sent me. So he prays for two types of unity, that they would have unity with each other, but also that they would have unity with Jesus and his mission. God, the one thing that will keep them from making a difference in the world is the way that they might fight with each other. So I'm praying that they will have unity with each other, that they will be one together, that they will be on the same page, that they will work together for the same mission, that they would recognize that what I've called them to is more important than any stupid thing that could ever potentially divide them. Philippians chapter 4, excuse me, James chapter 4 talks about this. If you've got your Bible, go to James chapter 4. In James chapter 4, verse 1 through 3, here's what he says. He says, what is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires that war within your heart? Isn't that where fighting comes from? Us wanting more and more and more, the evil desires in our heart, the selfishness that's in our heart. Truthfully, pride and selfishness, unmet expectations. These are the sources of our, of our, of our fighting with each other. Verse 2, you want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. All right, I scheme, but I don't really kill. <laughs> but Jesus said, if I've hated people, then I'm guilty of murder in my heart. So, okay, I've killed some of you too. <laughs> Definitely in traffic. Homeboy, I'm, I'm like, if it's what's in my heart, if God judged me on the condition of my heart, homeboy on 93 is a murderer. <laughs> you cut me off, dude. I'm thinking horrible things about you. So I, I want what I don't have, and so we schemed. To get, I definitely schemed, definitely schemed to get it, and you're jealous of what other people have, but you can't get it. And isn't that, that, that often is what derails me, the pursuit of more. How much do you want? More. When is having ever enough? Go, go back, for those of you guys who've been in the workforce for more than 10 years, go back and tell yourself 10 years ago what you're making now, and you'd go, homeboy's going to be rolling, and now you're making it, it ain't enough. It ain't enough, is it? Because if you made a million dollars, you know what you'd want? You'd want two million dollars. You know any millionaire who goes, all right, this is enough. Anybody ever have enough? Do you have enough? Yes or no? Neither do I. We never, do we ever have enough? It's the pursuit of more that distracts us. And this is true. And I know this for a fact because as a pastor, I get to talk to a lot of people on their deathbed, and nobody ever wishes that they made more money. I've talked to a lot of people who are dying. I've talked to dozens of people who are dying. Dozens of people who are dying. And none of them have ever said, I wish I had made more money. I wish I had worked longer hours. No one ever says that. Because when you're about to die, everything becomes crystal clear. And all you're going to care about on that day is how many of your family and friends will spend eternity with you in the presence of God. You won't give a rat's butt how young you were when you retired. Somebody came up to me after the teaching last night and said, so is it wrong for me to want to be successful? I said, absolutely not, because the more successful you are, the more people you're going to meet that I'll never meet. <laughs> but in your pursuit of wealth, recognize that the pursuit of wealth isn't the goal of your life, but all the people along the journey because as long as I'm always looking for more and more and more, I start seeing people as obstacles, right? I start using people to get paper rather than leveraging paper to help people. Are you with me? People ain't the ob object in the way of my goal. Dang it. People are the objective of my goal. 
I'm put on this earth to rescue people from sin. That's it. Why do you think God reached into your family and pulled you out of it, cleaned you off, broke your heart over your sin, your disobedience towards him and your selfishness towards other people? Why do you think he left you in that family? He pulled you out and put you right back in. Why? He rescued you from your disobedience, your sin. He changed your eternal destiny. His Holy Spirit filled you. And he puts you right back at your work. Why? Because everybody else, man, you need to be thanking God that you were the first one at work rescued. Don't get cocky about that, but he rescued you for a reason because he knew you had the ability to leverage that influence so that other people get rescued. That's the whole point. That's why I live on Seaver Street. It's for my neighbors who live behind me to get one chance to know and follow Jesus. Neighbors across from me to get one chance to know and follow Jesus. From my neighbors on the, le- on the left and right to get one, one chance to know and follow Jesus. That's why I'm in Stoyak. That's why I'm a coach. No, that's why my son's on basketball. Like, like he's on an AAU team now, and, which we're all shocked by that. But it's cool. It's fun. And he's, and he's getting better. It, it's great. But going to those practices, I'm consciously aware that the whole reason God put my son on that basketball team is because that basketball team is full of middle schoolers who need to turn from their sin and begin following Jesus. And I'm going to be talking and spending a whole lot of time with a whole lot of other dads who need to do the exact same thing. I know why I play basketball. It's so that everybody else who plays basketball gets one chance to know and follow Jesus. It's why I'm in the old man league at the Y when my hip ain't bugging me, but uh, I need a hip replacement. I actually have an orthopedic surgeon on Tuesday. Pray for me. I really do need a hip. I haven't played ball in three years, and I've only gained like 50 pounds, so we're doing good. (laughs) But it's what he prayed for. Stop fighting with each other. At the center of our problems with each other is the fear that God is not in control and won't give me what I need. So since God can't be trusted to give me what I need, homeboy better be scrappy. I better get what I can. I will pull myself up by my bootstraps because I don't trust God. And then everybody becomes a barrier. At the root of all of our relational problems, truthfully, is a spiritual problem that God can't be trusted. And when the world sees us loving and serving each other, especially people that we ordinarily wouldn't serve and love, they can't explain that. Look around. Look around this church. There are rich and there are poor. There are black and white and brown and all the shades in between. And everybody's on one page. Why? Because we know that what we're focused on is more important than any stupid thing that would divide us. There's hardcore Republicans and hardcore Democrats. That's why we don't talk about politics. Here's why. You know why? I'm not going to let temporary American politics keep people eternally separated from God. This church isn't for Democrats. This church isn't for Republicans or Independents. This church is here for my actual neighbors who still haven't turned from sin to begin following Jesus. And this church will be done not when we had 1,000 people or 2,000 people or 3,000 people. This church will be done when I don't have any more friends who are disconnected from God and when you don't have any friends disconnected from God. Then we can stop chasing the gates of hell. But until that day gets here, bro, we ain't stinking done. And that's what he prayed for, that we wouldn't get distracted by chasing paper. We'd always remember people are more important. And that God rescued me for a reason. And it wasn't just to rescue me, but it was to rescue everybody who's attached to me. Go back to the prayer so we can wrap this up. 
So verse 22, he says, I've given them the glory that you gave me so they may be one as we are one. Remember that glory, the importance. So they would recognize the importance. He said, give me glory. He says, make sure everybody knows what it is I'm doing and why I'm doing it so they see how important this is. And so I'm giving them that important job also. I want them to recognize the importance of the mission I've put them on so that they will be on the same page as we, Father, are on. Make sure they get this. And I'm thankful to God that those disciples did it, but the people who believed in Jesus because of their message were faithful to pass that on to others, who pass it on to others, who pass it on to others. And at different points in human history, different Christians have had to pay a different price to make sure that that light did not die in their generation. And even now in Egypt today, 26 people were murdered this morning in Egypt making sure that those Muslims who are far from God in Egypt get one chance to turn from sin and begin following Jesus. And they died to make sure that other people had that chance. But I think the reason why the church is so weak in America is because our faith cost us so little. So since we didn't pay much for it, it doesn't mean much to us. And Jesus knew that. That's why I said, I'm praying for them. Don't let them get lost along the way. Don't let them to forget why, don't let them forget why I rescued them first and their family. Why I rescued them on their street. Why I rescued them in their homeroom. Why I rescued them in their high school. Don't let them forget. The next verse, verse 23, he says, I'm in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. May they be so focused on the mission that the entire world knows why you sent me and how much you love them. The next verse, Father, I want those whom you have given me to be with me where I am. Then they can see all the glory that you gave me because you love me even before the world began. And I love that little part right there because it's a parenthetical thought right, in the, right towards the end of his prayer. What he says, he's like, God, don't let them forget why I rescued them. Don't let them forget how important it is that they make sure that others get the opportunity to be rescued also. And by the way, I cannot wait to hold them. I cannot wait for them to be with me because he's about to go to the Father. In 43 days from now, he'll ascend into heaven and be with the Father forever. He says, I cannot, like, and he's thinking about Sean, and he says, I can't wait till I can high-five Sean. I can't wait till I can hug her, you. I can't wait till I can put my arm around him, you. I can't wait till they can be with me with you, Father. I can't wait till we're together where they can see me as I actually am in my glorified state as God the Son. I can't wait. See, he'd already been with the disciples. He'd already high-fived them. He'd already hugged them, but he hasn't hugged you yet. And I love that when he's thinking about me, his thought is, and God, I just can't wait to hug Sean. That's going to be awesome. I like that. I like that he likes me. Because so many of you apparently don't. <laughs> I'm kidding, but he, he, he genuinely likes you. And you don't think about God that way, but he does. He just can't wait to be with you. He knows how hard it is to trust him when you haven't seen him. He knows that. That's why he's praying for you. Because he knows it's going to be harder for you than those who actually saw him. That's why he prayed for you, knowing that you would believe having never seen. That's why he says, I just can't wait till they can see that I was worth trusting all along. I can't wait till they meet me. I can't wait till I can hang out with them. 
And then he wraps up his prayer right before he steps into the garden and he's arrested and he's tortured to death. And here's the last thing that he prays. Oh, righteous father, the world doesn't know you, but I do. And these disciples that you sent me, now they do. Everyone who will ever believe in me because of them, they will too. And that's what he says next. I revealed you to them, the disciples, and I'm going to keep revealing myself. I'm going to keep revealing that I exist, that I love, that I save, that I forgive. I'm going to keep doing that. So all of those who will ever believe in me, I'm going to keep showing myself to them. I'm going to keep forgiving people that have never seen me. I'm going to keep rescuing people that that have never known me. I'm going to keep doing this. I'm going to keep doing this because, dang it, that's why you sent me. That's what all of this is about, is everybody getting one chance to know and to follow me. Then your love for me will be in them and I will be in them. So his prayer is, God, as you answer my prayer, for them to be filled with your spirit, as you answer my prayer, for them to turn from their sin, as you answer my prayer, for them to be one with each other, then they will do what I did. Then they will be focused on what I'm focused on. Then they will be one with us. They will be on the same page. Then they will get to the end of their life without regret. Then their lives will make the greatest difference. That's when they'll find their purpose. So here's a couple of questions as we wrap it up. Number one is this. Jesus said, I pray for all of those who will believe in me because of the message of the disciples. What if Jesus made that prayer personal? And he said, God, I want to pray for all of those who will ever believe in me because of Sean. But don't say Sean. Say your name. God, I pray for all of those who will ever believe in me because of John, because of Maria, By the way, if you're Portuguese, I already know that's your name. (laughs) Or your middle name, at least. Are you with me? But put your name in there. If you said, I pray for all of those who will believe in me because of the message of, put your name in there, then you tell me who is Jesus praying for if that's what he was to pray. If he said, I pray for those who will believe in me because of the message of, because of the life of, because of the love of, because of the acts of service of, and he put your name, then what three people is Jesus probably praying for? then maybe you ought to be praying for them too. That's how we'll wrap it up. But what if, I'll ask one more question. What if Jesus was for sure going to rescue everybody you have already been praying for this past week? Over the last six days, your friends who are disconnected from faith in God, what if Jesus promised, I will rescue everybody you prayed for this past six weeks? Excuse me, this past six days. Is there anybody he'd be rescuing? Or not, because we haven't been praying for them. And the reason why we haven't is because we've already gotten distracted from what's most important. And you right now are the reason why he prayed this is because he knew you'd get distracted. And this is your chance to get back on track. Let's not waste it. Let's pray. God, I'm thankful for your love, and I'm thankful that you never give up on me, no matter how many times I've, I've given up on you. I've, I get frustrated because I don't get my way. God, I am a selfish brat child of yours. I'm just glad that you've never rejected me. I'm, I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that you forgive me, and I'm thankful that you, you don't give up, that you give me more and more chances to turn from my sin, my selfishness, my disobedience to get it right again. God, I don't know how many second chances I have to take from you, but I'm thankful for all of the second chances I've had. And God, I'm sure I'll need a lot more. I'm just thankful that you love. Help me to love other people the way you love me. Help me to forgive other people the way that you forgive me. Help me to serve other people the way that you serve me. God, I'm asking for your will to be done in my life. 
That you didn't, help me to remember that you didn't save me from my sins just so I could spend eternity with you. You saved me from my sins so that every one of my friends would get an opportunity to spend eternity with you also. God, we just forget. We go to work thinking about how much money we can make, not thinking about the kind of difference we can make. We go to school thinking about grades and popularity and whether or not we'll make the team and who sits by us at lunch. Why are they looking for somebody else who doesn't have anybody sitting by them at lunch to sit with them? God, we're so focused on ourselves so much of the time. And I know you're not mad at me for that. You knew I would be like that. That's why you prayed this. You prayed this prayer because you knew we would drop the ball. And it's because you love us even when we do drop the ball that you ask the Father to make sure we remember to pick it back up again. And that's the opportunity we have now. So if you've been distracted, then your prayer is, God, help me to spend more of my life focused on those who need what I have in my life. God, no matter how far I go in my career and my education, help me to recognize that people aren't tools to be leveraged to get what I'm chasing, that they're the object of the journey that I'm on, that every college I go to, every Every high school class I'm in, every middle school class I'm in, every team I'm on, every job I have, I'm surrounded by people who need you, Jesus, please. Help me just remember that. Help me to pray for them. And when they bring, I'm asking you, God, to help them bring up the conversation so it doesn't get weird. Help me to remember that my job's just to keep the conversation going, but not to be afraid of it either. And God, we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.